Welcome back, Hemingface is to the Heming Brain podcast for book four, chapter ten. Not much of this chapter sunk in for me because I was too tired. I did notice that they said goose a lot. I counted four goose references in one chapter. It was a little bit uh, reminiscent of Tolstoy's bee tendency to mention bees a lot. Beads? Um, the goose references. Why so many goose? I bet I bet that old Thomas Mann had goose for dinner that night and just had goose on his brain. He had goose brain. I bet that's what happened. Anyway, Techrific has stepped in with a short summary for me to bring me up to speed. It's so weird that you can read a whole chapter and at the end of it just be like, I don't think that worked. Um, when children go to like grade prep in grade one and they're first learning how to read, so they're like, you know, five, six, seven years old, uh, one of the big things they test them on is reading comprehension and retention where they'll get them to read a book and it's all well and good if they can read the book but if at the end of it they can't sort of if you say okay so what was that story about they need to be able to say uh this and that like they were actually like comprehending it while they were reading it not just saying the words and i feel like i'm failing that test that the grade preps would hopefully be passing so that's cool anyway Luckily, we've got people like Techrific here to um, summarize the chapter. So here it is. Tony settles in the old family home, reveling in her new victim status. She's grown closer to her father and feels seen and appreciated. The divorce is finalized and Tony is looking forward to her new future and new prospects. Yeah, I actually do remember that happening now that you say it. Thomas returns home, I remember that as well. He's still thinking about his flower shop girl that recently got married. He's developed an interest in modern writers of satire and polemics. His health isn't as robust as one would expect from a young man. I remember all that as well. Maybe I did... I think just by the end I'm just burned out and I can't think back. Madame Kroger has died and left the Buddenbrooks a nice sum of money, I remember that, which went straight into the firm's working capital. Grunlich has declared bankruptcy... Some minor scandal occurred at Dahlbeck & Co. in Hamburg, where Jacob Kroger works. It's hinted that Jacob was involved and soon would sail to New York to become a salesman. Okay, by now I think I was off with the fairies a little bit. Christian Bottenbrook has wanderlust and set sail for Valparaiso to take up a position of some kind there. Uncle Gotthold has retired and enjoying sweets. Good for him. Glad things worked out for him despite his half-brother's betrayal. <clears throat> several years ago... Sorry, several years go by in this chapter. Tony travels to take the water and visits some famous spa towns. Goose is indeed mentioned a couple of times, even Silly Goose. Tony has a new pet name for herself and has also adopted the phrase Life is like that after all. As a sort of calming mantra for herself. I think in the version we read it was such is life. Uh, religion is even more present in the Buddenbrook household. To the dismay of Tony, she openly mocks visiting preachers. Very cool. Alright, thank you, Techrific, again, uh, for that. I feel like I'm up to speed. I think I was paying attention for the first half, and in the second half I must have just sort of 
started um, daydreaming or something. And then by the time I'd finished the whole chapter, I'd kind of forgotten what happened at the start. I'd say that's what happened. Okie doke. Chapter 11, it's the last chapter of uh, book four. So I'm expecting something to happen, you know. The, the book, uh, every book ends with something happening to lead us into the next part. Let's see what what's in what is in store for chapter 11. What follows happened in the late summer of 1855 on a Sunday afternoon. The Buddenbrooks were sitting in the landscape room waiting for the consul who was below dressing himself. They had arranged to take a holiday walk to a pleasure garden outside the city gate where all except Clara and Clothilde they were to drink coffee and if the weather permitted go for a row on the river. Clara and Clothilde went always on Sunday evenings to the house of a friend where they knitted stockings for little negro children. Papa is ridiculous, Tony said, using her habitual strong language. Can he never be ready on time? He sits and sits and sits at his desk. Something or other must be finished. Good heavens. Perhaps it is something really necessary. I don't know. But I don't believe we should actually become bankrupt if he put down his pen for a quarter of an hour sooner. Well, when it is already ten minutes too late, he remembers his appointment and comes upstairs always two steps at the time although he knows he will get palpitation at the top. And it is like that every comp- at every company, before every expedition. Isn't it possible for him to leave himself time enough and stop soon enough? It's so irresponsible of him. You ought to talk to him about it, Mama. She sat on the sofa beside her mother, dressed in the changeable silk that was fashionable that summer. While the Frau Consul wore a heavy grey ribbed silk trimmed with black lace and a cap of lace and stiffened tulle tied under her chin with a satin bow, the lappets of her cap fell down on her breast. Her smooth hair was still inexorably reddish blonde in colour and she held a work bag in both her white delicately veined hands. Tom was lounging in an easy chair beside her smoking his cigarette while Clara and Clothilde sat opposite each other at the window. It was a mystery how much good and nourishing food that poor Clothilde could absorb daily without any result whatever. She grew thinner and thinner, and her shapeless black frock did not conceal the fact. Her face was as long, straight and expressionless as ever, her hair as smooth and ash-coloured, her nose as straight but full of large pores and getting thick at the end. Don't you think it will rain, said Clara. The young girl had the habit of not elevating her voice at the end of a question and of looking everybody straight in the face with a pronounced and rather forbidding look. Her brown frock was relieved only by a little stiff turnover collar and cuffs. She sat straight up, her hands in her lap. The servants had more respect for her than anyone else in the family. Uh, oops, I lost my place. It was she who held the services morning and evening now, for the consul could not read aloud without getting a feeling of oppression in his in the head. Shall you take your new bashklik? she asked again. The rain will spoil it. It would be a pity. I think it would be better to put off the party. No, said Tom. The kisten makers are coming. It doesn't matter. The barometer went down so suddenly 
There will be a storm, it will pour, but not last long. Papa is not ready yet, so we can wait till it is over. The Frau Consul raised a protesting hand. You think there will be a severe storm, Tom? You know I am afraid of them. No, Tom answered. I was down at the harbour this morning talking to Captain Clute. He is infallible. There will be a heavy rain, but no wind. The second week in September had brought belated hot weather with it. There was a southwest wind, and the city suffered more than in July. A strange-looking dark blue sky hung over above the rooftops, pale on the skyline as it is in the desert. After sunset, a sultry breath like a hot blast from an oven steamed out of the small houses and up from the pavement of the narrow streets. Today the wind had gone round to the west, and at the same time the barometer had fallen sharply. A large part of the sky was still blue, but it was slowly being overcast by heavy grey-blue clouds that looked like feather pillows. Tom added, it would be a good thing if it did rain, I think. We should collapse if we had to walk in this atmosphere. It is an unnatural heat hotter than it even than it ever was in Nepal. Ida Jungman, with little Erica's hand in hers, came into the room. The child looked a droll little figure in her stiffly starched cotton frock. She smelled of starch and soap. She had her Grunlich's eyes and his rosy skin, but the upper lip was Tony's. The good Ida was already quite grey, almost white, although not out of the forties. It was a trait of her family. The uncle that died had had white hair at thirty, but her little brown eyes looked as shrewd and faithful as ever. She had been now for twenty years with the Buddenbrooks, and she realised with pride that she was indispensable. She oversaw kitchen larders linen and china cupboards she made the most important purchases she read to little erica made clothes for her dolls <clears throat> and fetched her from school with a slice of french bread to take her walking on the mill wall every lady said to frau consul or her daughter what a treasure your mamselle is my dear goodness she is worth her weight in gold twenty years and she will be useful at sixty and more these wiry people are. What faithful eyes she has. I envy you, my love. But Ida Jungman was every, sorry, was very reserved. She knew her own position, and when some ordinary nurse girl came and sat down with her charge on the same bench and tried to enter into conversation with Ida Jungman, Ida Jungman would say, There is a drought here, Erica, and get up and go. Tony drew her little daughter to her and kissed the rosy cheeks, and the Frau Consul stretched out her hand with rather an absent smile, for she was looking anxiously at the sky, which grew darker and darker. Her left hand fingered the sofa pillows nervously, and her light eyes wandered restlessly to the window. Erica was allowed to sit next to her grandmother, and Ida sat up straight on a chair and began to knit. Thus all waited silently for the Consul, the air was heavy. The last bit of blue was had disappeared. The dark grey sky lowered heavy and swollen over them. The colours in the room changed. The yellow of furniture and hangings on, and the tones 
of the landscapes on the walls were all quenched like the gay shades in Tony's frock and the brightness of their eyes. Even the west wind, which had been playing in the churchyard at St. Mary's and whirling the dust around in the darkening street, was suddenly quiet. This breathless moment of absolute calm came without warning like some unexpected, soundless, awful event. The sultriness grew heavier, the atmosphere seemed to increase its weight in a second, it oppressed the brain, it rested on the heart, it prevented the breathing, a shallow fl- a swallow flew so low over the pavement that its wings touched, and this pressure that one could not lift, this tension, this growing weight on the whole organism would have become unbearable had it lasted even the smallest part of a second longer. If at its height there had not come a relief, a release, a little break, somewhere, soundless yet perceptible, and at the same moment without any premonitory drops, the rain fell down in sheets. filling the gutters and overflowing the pavements. Thomas, whose illness had taught him to pay attention to his nerves, bent over in the second, made a motion towards his head, and flung away his cigarette. He looked round the circle to see if the others had felt anything. He thought his mother had, perhaps the others did not seem to be aware. The Frau Consul was looking out now into the thick, screaming rain, which quite hid the church from view she sighed thank god there said tony that will cool the air in two minutes but the drops will be hanging on the trees outside we can drink coffee in the veranda open the window tilda the noise of the rain grew louder it almost roared everything pattered streamed rushed foamed the wind came up and blew the thick veils of water tore them apart and flung them about it grew cooler every minute Lena, the maidservant, came running through the hall and burst so suddenly into the room that Ida Yeoman called out sharply. I say, what do you mean? Lena's expression's blue eyes were wide open. Her jaws worked without making a sound. Oh, Frau Consul, she got out at last. Come, come, quick. Oh, what a scare. Yes, Tony said. She's probably broken something again. Very likely the good porcelain. Oh, these servants of yours, Mamma. But the girl burst out, Oh no, Madame Grunlich, if that's all it was, it's the master. I were bringing up him his boots, and there he sits and can't speak on his chair, and I say to myself, there's something wrong there, the her consul. Get Grabau, cried Thomas, and ran out of the room. My God, oh my God, cried the Frau Consul, putting her hands to her face and hurrying out. Quick, get a wagon and fetch Grabau, Tony repeated breathlessly. Everybody flew downstairs and threw the breakfast room into the bedroom, but Johann Buttonbrook was already dead. All right, there we go. Okay. Johann Buttonbrook dead as well. I feel like we're flying through the years here. He was Junior Buttonbrook. Seniors died right at the start of the book. Now, uh... Off shuffles old Johan Buttonbrook off this mortal coil. Okay. Well then. Hey, didn't I tell you something was going to happen in the last chapter of the book? Alright, well thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow when we start uh, book five.